Hey everyone, Matt here from the Benvy Podcast, Success Stories Unveiled. We have a very special guest, Dana Lee Bagley, Dr. Dana Lee Bagley, um, our first kind of expert, I guess, um, rather than somebody who's an evolved client and uh, usually some weight loss stories and things like that. So, well, well, I'm technically both. You are, absolutely, yeah. So let's dive right into that. So you're an evolved client. Yep. Do you know right off how long you've been an evolved client? No, but I would say at least five years, probably longer, maybe. Yeah, I guess. We moved to Canard Street in May of 2013, so sometime after that. Yeah. I mean, time is really flying. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Calgary, and I've been in Halifax since 2007. Awesome. And was the first move here school, or was school already done by then? I was already done school, which I did in Vancouver at UBC. Yeah. Um, and so we came out here actually for jobs in healthcare and education. Awesome. In the university, yeah. Yeah, so you have a lot of titles. Um, let's go through that. So let's just go right from, like, what you studied in university to kind of, like, all of the things you've been up to as best chronological order as you can? Okay, sure. So I did my undergrad at University of Calgary in psychology, uh, and then I did a master's and PhD in clinical psychology at UBC, and then I did a postdoc at UBC. Then I moved to Halifax, and I became a registered psychologist. Um, this recent summer, I also became a registered psychologist in BC, Ontario, and Alberta, um, and that's because of virtual care now. It makes it possible to see people across Canada. Virtual care is way more kind of acceptable now because of the pandemic pandemic. Um, I also do research at Dalhousie University and St. Mary's University. So I do research on chronic disease at Dalhousie University in the Department of Family Medicine. And that's both behavior change for people living with chronic disease, but also behavior change in healthcare providers uh, so that they can better support chronic disease self-management. And then I do work on healthy workplaces at St. Mary's University. And so we've been doing a lot of work on burnout in frontline providers during the pandemic, um, leadership training uh, in burnout prevention. How do you find the time to do all of these things? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, obviously, always important, but more at the forefront now. Um, that actually brings a question that I didn't have on my list. Like, how has your profession changed? since the pandemic or over the last little while? Yeah, so I worked um, in healthcare for almost 15 years. I worked on the medical, surgical, and cancer care unit, so I was health psychology. So I often worked with people with chronic disease or life-threatening diseases. Um, I actually was there for uh, wave one and wave two of the pandemic, uh, and I left after wave two, and in part because I was a burnt-out healthcare provider as well. And also just that I felt my kind of skills were needed elsewhere. You could see this major wave of mental health problems coming because of COVID and especially in healthcare providers. So that's one of the things I specialize in is treatment for healthcare providers because I kind of know the culture, what it's really like to be on medical units, but then also have training in, you know, dealing with PTSD or moral injury and these things that now are part of the lives of healthcare providers, which weren't before COVID. And so I left to do more of that kind of work after wave two. So I do primarily virtual therapy now. Yeah. I do both individual and group therapy. We do a lot of group therapy to... Um, so part of the values of my clinic are about um, bringing people together, reducing human suffering, and increasing access to science-based information. And so one of the things we do is group therapy because it increases access as well as de decreased costs per person to do. And uh, there's really not enough psychologists to do one-on-one -on -one therapy. And so that's one of the ways we do that. We also do kind of on-demand video-only kind of uh, offerings as well of psychoeducation, which is basically like 
like, you know, information, again, science-based information on a variety of topics. Uh, one of the ones we do lately is actually on pandemic burnout and how to deal with pandemic burnout. Yeah, and that's um, obviously a, a big topic. Uh, how, like, when, when did you know? Like, how old were you when you knew that you wanted to be a psychologist and help people with this kind of thing? I didn't, actually. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I would actually say that I sort of fell into it in a bit. I, was, I actually almost became a chemistry, organic chemistry major. Um, I did a lot of science wow. uh, courses. My dad, who's an engineer, uh, he's an immigrant from Hong Kong, and his whole family is engineers. Right. So he was actually kept asking me if I really just didn't want to become an engineer. Yeah. Uh, so the whole psychology thing was a little surprising to him yeah. <laughs> at first. It w- became acceptable once it became a PhD, right. and I got to be yeah. called doctor. <laughs> so, uh, but he's supportive, of course. Yeah. So yeah, I, I kind of fell into it, but I really love understanding human behavior, and it actually wasn't quite until quite late in my training that I realized I wanted to be a health psychologist, which is a real kind of specialty. It's not the same thing as kind of uh, mental health psychology, of course, deal with those kinds of issues, but you're dealing with a lot of things that face kind of um, everyday kind of situations um, where we can use psychology to do it better. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go through some questions, and you can stop me, and you can go on a tangent at any time. Um, because there's just so many things that are going to be over my head, but I think are very important. Um, what would you tell someone um, interested in becoming a psychologist first, and then I'll ask you some questions about healthy habits and all that stuff. What would your advice be for somebody thinking about getting into the field? Well, I think there's a huge demand, and there's a really significant need. Uh, for me, being a psychologist is about helping to reduce human suffering. And there's so much that we actually know. Like, one of the things about the pandemic, you know, is that we have all this information and science about vaccines, for example, but we haven't nearly as much invested in the, like, you know, psychology of taking vaccines. And right. so there's a huge role for those kinds of, you know, skills in terms of psychology and understanding human behavior uh, because the science is there about vaccines, but we need to back that up with, like, the social sciences as well. So I think it's a really interesting field. There's a lot of um, interesting things you can do. It's also a really long degree to get, yeah. right? So I spent 10 years in school uh, and went straight through, and not everyone goes straight through. So uh, it's a really big commitment, but I do feel like I get to do really meaningful, purposeful things in my life, um, and so I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. So on the other side of things, and you said human suffering, and that's something that you see a lot and we see a lot, and uh, we see a lot of people that suffer in silence. And there is, and I would have felt this five years ago before it was, I would say more, I would, and I'm doing quotes right now for the audio here, but um, accepted now to seek out professional help. But there's a bit of a stigma around that, like, oh, you need help. Right. Like, why shouldn't you be able to figure it out your, yourself? So what would you say to people that, are suffering in silence and are really nervous or think that they shouldn't need professional help. Yeah, so I actually hope that's one of the things that, you know, permanently changes because of the pandemic, because it's one of the things that has become more acceptable is that people might need help and to uh, talk about mental health and to recognize it as an important thing, like in workplaces and your, you know, social circles. So I hope that kind of sticks. There still is stigma around it. Um, and, you know, to me, like I take my computer to someone to get it fixed when it's not working. I take my car to someone when it's not working. Like we actually have a huge amount of science about psychology and mental health and wellness and physical health. And so to not get expert advice when it's there, you know, um, 
seems it's a shame because it really is there for you. And people, we actually have a huge amount of science about helping people's mental well-being, and we want to take advantage of that. And especially in the pandemic because it's so challenging. It's really, you know, we talk about it as being unprecedented. Well, maybe one of the unprecedented things we need to do is to seek support and extra, you know, help because it's been a really huge challenge for most humans. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it, and we say that in our field as well, is that if you have a problem with your tooth, you go to the dentist, and we have all of these professionals available to us, but for some reason, there's just certain ones where we think that we need to figure it out ourselves. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, so you're an author as well, uh, Healthy Habits Suck, right? Yeah. And that book, do you want to explain what that's about? And then maybe I can ask you a few questions. Yeah, so the book's called Healthy Habits Suck, How to Get Off the Couch and Live a Healthy Life, Even If You Don't Want to. And it's basically, again, part of my values around increasing access to science-based information. And so it's the science of behavior change and healthy habits. And so it's for people who might never have access to a health psychologist. There is, like, a, really a lot of science about doing it smarter rather than just doing it harder, like, rather than just trying harder, you can do it in a smarter way and be more likely to be successful. And so the book is really meant for people who don't naturally want to exercise or, you know, uh, who, you know, don't see kale chips as like a splurge, you know. So it's meant for really everyday, ordinary humans who might be struggling with healthy habits. I remember presenting once, and I had a, and I, and I often talk about the fact that it's okay if you don't like exercise, that we can link it to other things that are important. And if you don't actually like the act of exercise, that's okay. We can find other ways to motivate that. And afterwards, a physician came up to me and said, well, you know, I think there are some people who really do enjoy exercise. I was like, yeah, but they're not the ones you're trying to convince to exercise. They're already <laughs> exercising. Yeah. It's the ones who aren't exercising who think that it's supposed to feel good. When actually, it's totally okay if it feels crappy. Absolutely. And that's the title, Healthy Habits Suck. Yeah. So I remember talking to a marathon runner, and he was in, I think, his 70s, and I honestly had to ask him to slow down because he ran faster than me. Uh, and he said this, and it was really, you know, uh, meaningful to me, that he said, oh, I don't actually enjoy the act of running. He's like, I enjoy being a runner. And so that's the difference, is that we're trying to link it to other important things in our life, and not just health, actually. One step beyond that, which is, what does the health allow you to do? What does it allow you to be? What does it allow you to contribute to the world or connect with people or care about people? How does health help you be the person you want to be in this world? And to make use of those kinds of motivators, which we refer to as values, which is part of the science that's in the book, um, and so to help us understand that it can be yucky and we can do it anyways. Yeah, and that's interesting because on our side of things, I mean, you know our message, it, it's I want people to do activities that they enjoy, but you should probably strength train twice a week if you don't, even if you don't like it because of the benefits that it will give you um, outside of that, but then not even thinking from what you just said is like some people might not have anything that they enjoy, yeah. right? So yeah. then they really have to have that every single yeah. day and, and overcome that. And I talk about it in the book that I was a runner for a long time. I did all kinds of 10K races. I have, like, this whole, you know, uh, wall of medals from <laughs> 10K <laughs> yeah. races. I never once got a runner's high. Yeah. I don't know what that feels like, mm -hmm. right? But, again, it was part of other value system about why I was doing it, and that's why I persisted. And so that's what one of the things we work on with people to help with their healthy habits is to connect it to something that already matters to you about maybe the kind of parent you want to be or being a high-performing person elsewhere in your life or being 
being a more compassionate person. For me, I often tell people that the reason I go to the gym isn't for weight or health. It's so I don't yell at my kid at bedtime because I'm going to be a more patient parent if I've gone to the gym because it recharges my battery and it's good, you know, anxiety management and all those kinds of things. And so I'm a better parent because I do that. So it's not actually time away from my kid. You know, people worry about feeling selfish about doing it. It's actually one of the ways that I show up as the parent that I want to be is by going to the gym so that I'm less likely to yell at him at bedtime. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's uh, roll this back a little bit because that's a great example, and you kind of talked about a lot of great examples really quickly. Um, that is a big problem, I would say, mainly in women who you know they're used to being the provider and doing all the things and not making time for themselves. When you, especially as an expert, know if they do make time for themselves, chances are they're going to do the other things better. So can you expand on that a little bit and maybe give some other examples of connecting the what happens after exercise to different areas of life? Right. And so it's a common thing that people, you know, we try to convince people to put themselves higher on their own priority list, but that's a tough sell for a lot of people, right? And so instead, what we can do is to link the, you know, exercise or physical activity to something that already matters to them. So a really common one I do with parents is about being the parent you want to be, right? And that might be modeling the behavior for your kids that you want them to be physically active. Uh, For me, my kid's already really physically active, and so that's not as important, but I also want him to know that he's not the center of the universe and that sometimes he has to put his needs aside for other people. And so I often go to the gym when he's um, like playing sports, even though he'd rather I come watch him, right? Uh, But I often say to him, I was like, well, mommy needs to go so that I don't yell at you later, right? So we're connecting it to the values the whole time. And so rather than trying to convince yourself to make yourself a higher priority, it's about recognizing that going to the gym is going to serve you in all the ways that matter to you. And because one of the things we know about physical exercise is that it actually kind of recharges your battery, and it recharges what we call our frontal lobe, which is um, the locus of, like, self-control or willpower, and it's like a battery. And so we will wear out that battery as we use it up. But things like sleep, eating healthy food, physical activity, being in nature, socializing often will recharge that battery. And to show up the way you want to in life, you need that battery to be charged. And so we want to think about recharging our battery is actually not just in the service of us, but in the service of all the people who matter to you, all the people you interact with, all the things that are important to you, and that's how we're trying to, you know, find that time. And you will still feel guilty. So there's a chapter in the book called How to Take Guilt for a Run, which is that it's okay to feel guilty and do it anyway, because you probably will feel guilty, but still that kind of chatter about feeling being selfish will probably show up as just a cultural kind of thing, and in fact makes you a well-functioning human that you can feel guilt, you know, yeah. like psychopaths <laughs> are the ones who don't feel guilt, right? right? Uh, but it's not giving you good advice about how to yeah. be a parent, about how to be a spouse, about how to be, you know, a high-performing employee or whatever else is important to you. And so we want to go to the gym and feel yucky doing it, which means both like the discomfort of physical activity, but also that you might feel guilty while you're doing it. You might, I still feel like, oh, I should be at the rink watching my kid. But I know that this is actually more in the service of what's going to be better for all of us. Yeah. And what would you say to, because a lot of people... And, you know, Matt, Matt Sims came on here, and he, he's a high-performing CEO, and he had a 
period of being very unhealthy and now is reaping the benefits. But it's, there's a lot of high-performing people in their careers, and they put their health aside. Um, and probably if they kept their health a little bit more, you know, it's not always going to be the number one focus if you're working on your career. But um, what would your advice be to the busy um, people in their careers that have let it slide and are, and, are, and are not doing anything healthy and it's holding them back? Yeah, so eventually that's going to catch up with you, right? And eventually... You know, health is the thing that allows us to do other things that matter to you. So there are times in our lives when we can get away with it, kind of, you know, of not being healthy. But eventually it catches up to you, and then you won't be able to do the things that really matter to you. And that might be, you know, something like obvious or significant, like a like a disease, like diabetes or heart disease or something like that. But it could also just be, you know, that you're sluggish or that you're tired all the time. Uh, these are the things that, again, kind of creep up on us, you know, if we're not investing in our health. So again, think about your health not in and of itself, the thing that's important, but that your health is allowing you to do all these other things that matter to you, right? If we think about going to the gym as recharging, then you are recharging for all the things that matter to you, including your career. So again, going to the gym isn't, you know, time away from work or time away from like my patients that I see. It's a, a contribution to that. This is one of the things we work on with healthcare providers because again, the culture is not about taking care of themselves. And so we talk about recharging is in the service of your patients. It's in the service of your colleagues, right? It's in the service of your family uh, because it's going to help you show up the way you want to, to give better patient care, to make fewer medical errors, like these kinds of things. So it's actually in the service of your patients to go take care of yourself. It's not you, you know, prioritizing yourself or doing something selfish. It's actually in the service of your patients that you're seeing. Yeah. So is it possible, uh, this, this information is worth a lot of money, but is it possible to have a short kind of tips about burnout for, we train a lot of nurses and doctors and things like that. Is there, do you have like a top three things that you've had success with people with? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, first, we are we talk about it as recharging rather than like self-care and that we're recharging that battery and we're linking that to being in the service of all the things that matter to them and all the people that are important to them. Um, that's really important uh, to kind of reframe it as recharging. Um, and again, in the service of their patients, in the service of their family. This, the other big thing we do with healthcare is we actually try to address systemic problems in healthcare, right? There's actually way too much focus on the individual or the employee in burnout interventions, and you actually want to address the systemic environmental workplace issues that are leading to burnout. And we know there are a ton of them in healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a very healthy work environment yeah. for lots of reasons. And so um, we actually did uh, research um, and training on leadership intervention for burnout, and so we're doing one with physicians right now, which okay. is um, we're training leadership skills to reduce burnout in their employees. Mm -hmm. And so those are to address systemic problems that lead to burnout rather than just individuals. So you want to do both, right? Um, and the last part about burnout is that the antidote to burnout isn't rest. It's actually reigniting a sense of meaning and purpose and reconnecting with people who are important to you. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And, you know, you talk, we talk about exercise and you did quickly talk about other things like social things and being outside in nature and stuff like that and all the frontal um, lobe stuff. So that's, I mean, 
that's what we tell people is, is you have to be around people too and yeah. not just yeah. don't go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, and so it's really important to, I talk about it as building a village, right, uh, which, you know, I think evolved as a fantastic job of building a village. Thank you. And it's definitely one of the reasons why I, like, stay connected uh, to this community and, and I think why I've continued with the gym for this long. Um, and so you need a village to be well, right? Um, but many of us have to create, like, an, a modern-day artificial village. We might not have that built-in village. And that's always meant to be more than your biological relatives. So when I talk about a village, people often kind of instinctively respond about whether they have, you know, family members who are supportive or not or nearby. Uh, but technically, if your whole village was biological relatives, that would result in inbreeding. And that's not good. Right? So you're actually always meant to, like, invite other people into your village. And that might change over the course of your life. And that might be a good thing. You might need different people in your village at different, you know, times in your life. And so we want to have the ability of building that village because it's a benefit for both, right? So if I, you know, connect with somebody, it's a benefit for me. It's recharging my battery, but it's probably recharging their battery too. Um, and that often healthcare providers are part of our village, right? So I have lots of clients that, you know, their therapist or psychologist is like a, a real source of support that they might not find elsewhere in their life, and that's totally okay, right? It's also okay to pay people to be part of your village, right? I pay a babysitter, I pay a guy to do home repair, <laughs> I pay somebody to like clean my toilets. These are all part of my village, and it's yeah. totally okay if you have to pay for it if you have the means available to you, which yeah. not everyone does, yeah. uh, because uh, that's not because you're lacking in some way that you don't have that support. It's because modern life makes it really hard to have a village, and. So so we often need to fill in the gaps sometimes by paying people if you have the means available to you. And so I often, you know, say to people, what are the things that anyone could do and what are the things that only you could do? Because we kind of act like that battery is unlimited, and if you just try harder, you can do more, but it's actually fixed. And so if we thought about where do I want to spend my battery instead of just believing we can create more energy, then we would think about how we're spending it. You know, and if somebody, if anyone could do it, could you give it to anyone to do? And could you save your battery for the things that matter most, for the things that only you can do, that other people can't do? Because that's actually going to make your life more meaningful and purposeful as well. Yeah, same as the front of the business. Yeah. Right? Some things that only I can do. Exactly. If I try to do everything, then yeah. it's not going to work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, healthy habits. So you said something um, during one of our sessions one time about, and, you know, how frustrated we get with, like, the 21-day fix and things like that. And everybody thinks that it's 21 days to, to make a habit, and you know that that's not true. So um, can you talk about building habits and, and specifically, you know, related to health-related things and some tips related to that and how long it may take? Yeah, so it's actually a myth that it takes 21 days to build a habit. There is zero scientific evidence for this. Uh, so the shortest I've ever seen in the literature is 166 days, and it <laughs> frankly wouldn't be shocking if it was like two to five years. And so I know that totally sounds like a bummer, uh, but I think it's really important because people get to day 22 and they think it's supposed to be easy. And when it's not, then they give up, yeah, right? Exactly. Uh, and so we actually want to recognize that uh, doing a healthy habit is going to require some frontal lobe battery. And by that, I mean it requires intention. It requires you to be conscious and deliberate and to do it purposefully. It doesn't happen accidentally. And this is because of how our brains work, which is that part of our brain is an automatic unconscious part of our brain was really well suited to prehistoric times, um, and I just refer to it as our survival brain or our caveman brain, it functions automatically. Um, and that part of our brain 
wants us to pick the path of least resistance, to eat as much food as you as is possible. And these were all really important survival skills when we were cave people, right? And would have increased our chances of survival. And so some of those things become automatic. Anything that's like life-saving becomes part of an automatic system so that we don't have to choose it. So for example, breathing is automatic, right? And you can't actually hold your breath long enough to suffocate yourself to death. It's like impossible because that part of your brain takes over. So that part of our brain is unconscious, automatic. It does things for us. If you want to do a healthy habit, it's the opposite of what your caveman brain wants you to do. Uh, Because our environment, our modern world is totally different than our prehistoric world. So in the past, we used to get the same amount of exercise that triathletes get nowadays. And that was just to survive. And so if you had a chance to rest, you totally should rest, right? It would not make sense if you had like two cave people and one just like ran around for no good reason, (laughs) like because he wanted to go for a run, right? And then he gets chased by like a lion. He's not the one who survives, right? The guy who is resting and conserving energy because they were all super fit, right? He's the one that would have survived. So we have these built-in hardwiring automatic responses uh, that are super well-suited to that environment and really a mismatch to our modern world. And so you have to choose a healthy habit with intention, which means it requires some frontal lobe battery. And so it's going to take some frontal lobe battery for way longer than 21 days uh, in order to build a habit. And something like going to the gym, for example, could easily be a two-year process because you really need a full calendar year to see if can you keep going to the gym over the holidays? Can you keep going during barbecue season? Can you keep going during like summer break? And so you actually, it's not until the second year you even have a chance to figure out kind of how to do it. Yeah right, how to keep it going. And so uh, it's just for people to keep in mind that it's going to need some frontal lobe battery. Where are you spending your battery? Do you have enough extra battery to dedicate towards this? Um, And that it's going to require some intention on your part. It's not something that happens automatically. So the way I describe this is like a wheelbarrow. So if you take a wheelbarrow and you push it over bumpy ground, eventually it makes a little groove, and then it's easy to push the wheelbarrow in the little groove, right? Um, What you're doing when you're making behavior change or like trying to change a healthy habit is that you're actually lifting up the wheelbarrow and pushing it in a new direction over bumpy ground. So initially that takes a lot of effort to lift it up and push it over bumpy ground. If you do it enough times, you'll make a groove in the new direction and it'll become easier. But the old groove never goes away. And so if we don't have enough frontal lobe battery or there's life stress going on or other things, we can fall into the old habit really easily. And so that's, again, to remind yourself to, like, charge your battery first as the first step towards behavior change um, or to think about where you're spending your battery uh, and then to make sure that you're going to dedicate some of it to this. The second kind of points around behavior change would be um, setting smarter goals. And so one of them would be to set a behavioral goal. So a behavioral goal is something that someone else can see you do. It's not how you feel about it or whether you enjoy it. So people often set goals like, I want to enjoy eating salad or I want to want to go to the gym. Those are all things actually dedicated and dictated by our survival brain, right? So emotions, automatic thoughts, learning, memory, that's all survival brain. And so choosing anything as a goal that is the domain of your survival brain is going to get you in trouble because you can't control anything in there deliberately or intentionally, just like you can't hold your breath long enough to suffocate to death, right? You can't, you know, there's some things that you don't have direct access to. 
the thing that our frontal lobe battery does is controls behavior. And so if you pick a behavioral goal, you're going to be way more successful because it's actually something you have control over. So going to the gym is a behavior. Someone can watch you do it. They could check off that it happened. Enjoying the gym is not a behavior. <laughs> Wanting to go to the gym, yeah. not a behavior. Oh, so picking a behavioral goal will make you feel way more empowered, right? Uh, and so people, you know, when they come for therapy and they'll say, oh, it wasn't a very good week. I didn't feel good. You know, I felt depressed or things like that. We'll say, okay, but what'd you do with your behavior? And behaviorally, they might have done all the things, right? And right. that's actually success because that's the part you have control yeah. over. Right. The next part is to pick a 90% goal, which is a goal you're 90% sure you can succeed at. And this is, again, because we actually don't have enough frontal lobe battery to change everything all at once. And people do, especially New Year's, right? They do mm -hmm. this go big or go home. They try to change everything in their life all at once. You don't have enough battery to do that. All humans don't have enough battery to change that many things. So just pick something you're 90% sure you can change. And again, in the pandemic, what a 90% goal is is different than what it was before because we use up our frontal lobe battery all the time yeah. just to get through the pandemic, right? All these new and changing behaviors, who, how many people am I allowed to see? Right? <laughs> am I allowed to wear my mask? Do I, yeah. right? Do I have my vaccine passport with me? These are all using a frontal lobe battery. So pick something you're 90% sure you can do and then build from there. Once that becomes kind of a habit, then you can add on to that, right? Yeah. Do not pick 10 90% goals. <laughs> if you have 10 of them, even if each one is 90%, all of them together is not 90% yeah. goal. So we're often in therapy working with people on one or two goals, and that's it. Yeah. I will not let people work on three or more goals. It's just too much. Most people don't have enough frontal lobe battery yeah. for that, right? So um, picking a goal that, uh, that you can succeed at, then picking a do instead goal instead of a don't do goal. So there's a phenomenon in psychology called white bear's effect, which is that when you try to not think about something, you start thinking about it. So if I were to tell you to not think about white bears, you would yeah. suddenly find yourself thinking about white bears or <laughs> I, working I really hard, <laughs> right? And I use the pink elephant example of don't think about pink elephants. Yeah. And so we often said don't do goals for ourselves, especially around dietary changes. So I'm going to stop drinking pop. I'm going to not eat late at night. I'm going to stop eating junk food. You're creating white elephants or pink elephants or white bears or pink elephants, right? right? And so you want to find a do instead goal. What are you going to do instead of drinking pop? What are you going to do instead of eating junk food? And think about adding healthy things in rather than taking unhealthy things out because it also helps us feel less deprived because we're focusing on the things we can have instead of the things we can't. And eventually the healthy stuff starts to crowd out the unhealthy stuff. Right. And then the last point is just uh, expect to fall off the wagon. Right. Um, it's not really a question of if you'll fall off the wagon. The question is how quickly can you get back on? Yeah. And so being able to get back on after, because life happens and it'll get interrupted. You might have every intention of going to the gym and then there's a blizzard or you get sick or your kid gets sick or you get in isolation or quarantine because yeah. of the pandemic, right? Things happen. And so you want the ability to get back on track more quickly. And that's, again, about picking a 90% goal, right? Start easy and ease yourself back on to the wagon. And there's a lot of research showing that when we can be compassionate to ourselves, which is about recognizing everyone makes mistakes, everyone has human failings, right? That actually helps us get back on track faster. And that's because self-criticism actually comes from our survival brain. It's an automatic process. But if you fuel that uh, self-criticism, then you have a caveman brain that's on fire and your frontal lobe battery has to like dedicate some energy towards managing this caveman brain that's on fire. 
if we respond to that self-criticism with compassion or kindness or understanding, that actually could free up some frontal lobe battery to mm. then use it towards making your healthy choice. Interesting. Oh, man, that was, that's, yeah, that was great. And that's, I mean, it all hits home for me, obviously. Um, and it kind of answered a lot of my questions because my next point was about why people fail when they go all or nothing and that you basically explained why and it's we usually try to do no more than five habits with people and again being 80 to 90 percent sure that they can do it and where i find people um, struggle is that and this is the all or nothing thing is that if they just did those things they would make progress to their goals but they think they don't do those things they do zero things instead of one to five things or whatever because they think that they're only going to make progress if they do ten things. Yep. So. Yep. And there's an example that I give sometimes too, which is there was this, these experiments that they did with pigeons like way back in the 30s or 40s about behavior therapy and behavior change. And basically they were trying to get pigeons to walk in a circle, but pigeons don't naturally walk in a circle. And so first you have to reward the pigeon for just turning their head. So every time they turn their head, then they get a reward. Then they have to like turn their head and take a step, right? And you reward them for turning their head and taking a step. Then they have to turn their head and take two steps, right? And you slowly reward them over time and eventually they walk in a circle. And that's the same thing for humans. Some of these behaviors, like going to the gym seven days a week, is actually like requires a huge amount of frontal lobe battery. And so if you work your way up through, it's called shaping, right, which is those uh, gradual 90% goals and adding to them over time, this is the science of behavior change. You are way more likely to succeed than if you do the all or nothing thing. And it's, again, this like myth that we have unlimited battery and that if you just try harder, you can do more. Our frontal lobe battery is a fixed amount, just like a battery, right? It actually, you can't just keep making it bigger and bigger and bigger. There is a fixed amount. And so, you know, this is also that if you have other, a lot of other things going on in your life, right, uh, you might not have enough battery to change a whole bunch of things. Just change some very small little thing. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So let's talk about you and your history of exercise and health and things like that. Like, uh, take me through, because um, I have, have only known you as an adult, like, let's say, like, high school until now, or if there's anything relevant before that, like were you athletic growing up or anything like that? Or was, was exercise part of life? Yeah, so I played sports growing up. I was never like an elite athlete, but I definitely was in sports. Um, I did gymnastics a lot actually as a kid um, and then was, you know, invited to do competitive, but I actually didn't want to do competitive. So I tried out lots of different sports like skating and gymnastics and dancing and all kinds of other things. So that was like typically, you know, part of my life for most of my life. I would say then when I had a kid, that then became like a different balance because they use up a lot of frontal lobe battery yeah. children, right? I would pretty much kind of maintain, uh, you know, healthy habits on and off kind of during that period. Um, I mean, most parents at a certain point lose their healthy habits just because it's really exhausting and we did not have a very good village at yeah. that time and it was one of those learning lessons about you really need a village to be well. But then the big shift happened when I got divorced, um, and I gained a lot of weight when I got divorced, just, again, because of the stress. We actually know that, like, when you have a stress hormone in your body, it's, like, harder to lose weight. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, again, probably some evolutionary advantage, right, that if you're going to go through some stressful time, it's good to have a little extra reserve on you, yeah. right? And so... Um, 
that was the major shift, and that's when I joined Evolve, was after I got separated. So I consistently go six or seven times like to the gym every week, um, but it took a while to get there, right? There was definitely times when I would fall off the wagon, I wouldn't go for several months, and then you know, I'd get back at it, and that period of time off the wagon got smaller and smaller. Right. And so then it became like a month then it became like two weeks, then it became like a day. Right. Um, And so now it's pretty unusual for me to miss two or three days in a row would be unusual for me. Um, And so that was like when there was a big shift. And it was a really great learning lesson for me, too, because at the time I was doing all these healthy habits. I was running 10 K's and like, you know, eating well and not losing any weight at all. Right. and that happens for people because there's all kinds of other biological factors that influence weight beyond what we eat and how much we exercise. Um, and so my you know, saying at the time was, my job is to do healthy habits. What my body does with that isn't up to me. Yeah. Right? Um, and, so, and I remember actually, because I do a lot of work uh, with people living with obesity and chronic disease and diabetes, um, and I was running a course um, on obesity management, and I was technically in an obese category at that point. I was like, how am I going to stand up here and tell these people how to do this, right? Uh, But I could because I was walking the walk. So even though, uh, like, my weight wasn't changing, I was doing all kinds of healthy things. And so I totally felt okay being up there because I was actually doing exactly what I was suggesting they do, which is do healthy habits, even if your body, you know, doesn't do what you want it to do, you're still being healthier. Um, And so, you know, after many years, <laughs> kind of shifted, but it's still something I have to put a lot of intention to, right? I stare at my calendar, you know, like every semester and look at like, where am I going to put the gym and trial and error about what works and what doesn't work. And yeah. I realized I have to do it early in the morning or I don't have enough frontal lobe battery later in the day to do right. it, right? Yeah. So, uh, so I still put a lot of intention into it. Yeah. I would say it is too bad that more people that are, are in the category of overweight that are healthy, they don't necessarily know that because they're not going to the doctor and getting the blood test done and things like that. So yeah. I wish that and they would know that more. Weight is a terrible, not terrible, weight is not the best indicator of health. Yeah. Right? It's a, a proxy that we use in medicine, but it's really not your best indicator. And there's actually studies showing that, you know, your BMI, which is a calculation of weight versus mm-hmm. height, is not the best indicator of health, that there's actually better indicators. Uh, there's one called the Edmonton Obesity Staging System, which is um, your weight plus complications or comorbidities. Oh, and so when you put those two together, then it becomes predictive. But right. weight in and of itself is not. Because, again, there's some bodies that are just bigger and they're totally healthy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, BMI doesn't capture those factors. They've done studies demonstrating that, like, elite athletes, like football players, yeah. often end up being in the obesity category, even though they're clearly super healthy. Yeah. And that's how I define obesity also, is not just ex- excess weight, but excess weight that's causing medical or psychological complications. And that definition, you know, we can see obesity as a chronic disease, similar to diabetes, something that you have to, you know, um, monitor and put effort into for a long time, meaning that uh, if you're not working on your diabetes or, you know, then you're not going to see the effect. If you're not working on uh, weight, you're not going to see the effect. There's no such thing as like, you know, taking diabetes medication for six weeks and then expecting it to last the rest of your life, right? So um, we also don't see that you should go on a diet. 
it and it's going to last the rest of your life, yeah. right? And we actually know way more science about weight as well and all kinds of ways our bodies like compensate for losing weight. Because again, from our survival brain, losing weight is like a life-threatening thing, yeah. right? Because uh, starving to death has been a problem for mm -hmm. the human species forever and continues to be. Yeah. As we are speaking, there are people starving to death yeah. in the world. So this is not a threat that humans have overcome. And so human bodies have all kinds of systems to make sure that we don't starve to death including things like reducing our metabolism, right? But also things like food will smell better and taste better after you lose weight. So a yeah. year after you lose weight, Crazy. you actually experience bigger cravings for food than somebody who hasn't lost mm -hmm. weight. And so, you know, this is also why you want medical management when it's obesity in terms of a medical condition, because, you know, we, we don't expect people with heart disease or diabetes, you know, to, to just work on lifestyle things and that's it. You get medication, you get surgery, there's all kinds of interventions. And if you have obesity as a chronic disease, then you should look into all kinds of interventions, including psychology, but also including medication and surgery, right? It is a medical condition that needs uh, interventions. And moving more and eating less is actually not an empirically based intervention exactly. for losing weight. Yeah. There's well demonstrated yeah. that most people will regain the weight. And yeah. that's because, again, your body's trying to make sure you don't starve to death. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, to put the BMI in perspective, my friends in Wisconsin, I remember when they were first getting their vaccines, I could have gotten one early because I was clinically overweight or whatever, and I'm 5'7", 160. So wow. yeah, I was 0.1 over the yeah. BMI that was available, so I could have gotten an early vaccine there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. This was great. There's, I mean, I'm sure we could talk for hours, but we don't want it to be too long. Is there anything that you think is relevant to share to an audience that is, that is, I mean, people who are going to the gym or want to go to the gym and that are generally at least thinking about working on their healthy habits or already are? I would just also say that we really need to take the pandemic into account, right? Um, our uh, the pandemic makes our caveman brain on fire and it uses up our frontal lobe battery. And we really have... Uh, terrible expectations about what's possible, you know, like that in lockdown, you somehow were supposed to make good use of your time. Like we were all just surviving. You're yeah. under threat, right? And so our expectations for what we should be able to do in the pandemic are really skewed. And I often say that if this was World War III, we would have abandoned all kinds of expectations and just focused on the war effort. And that actually would help us manage our stress because we would get rid of all kinds of expectations. But what we've done in the pandemic, we just added the stress of the pandemic on to the stress of everyday life right. uh, and it's too much for most yeah. people and that's why we see all kinds of like mental health strains for all kinds of people right and so I really think we need a lot more compassion and kindness which is about you know compassion is about recognizing suffering and having a desire to alleviate it in ourselves or somebody else you know kind of recognizing that common humanity that everybody struggles everyone makes mistakes everyone has setbacks um, and we really need way more compassion for ourselves and others during the pandemic. And we're still not out of it, right? Like we all hoped there was like this exit ramp yeah. with the vaccines. And here we are yet again in another wave. So we really just need to take that into account and be kind to ourselves and other people. You know, the most important things in the pandemic, um, sometimes the pandemic tells us you know, it highlights for us the most important things. And that is often about health, because if you don't have your health, you can't do other things, right? 
And it's often about our relationships and connections with people, and that's the things we want to be using our frontal lobe battery for, right? Which is, you know, it is actually why Evolve works so well for me, because I often, <laughs> especially to Mitch, because he's always like, stop talking, because <laughs> I'm one of those classes that talks a lot. But I was like, the exercise is really bonus. I'm actually just yeah, here to socialize, absolutely. right? Uh, and that's what it offers me, because I see the same people. Like, I'm friends with, you know, you guys in non-pandemic times have parties and get-togethers. Yeah. You know, I hang out with people that I've met at the gym mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, so it is really like a social connection on top of exercising. The exercise yeah. is kind of bonus and yeah. extra. It is for us too. Yeah, and that's <laughs> why it really works for me, right, is because I'm actually attaching that value of socializing along with exercise. So, um, yeah, so it's just to be mindful of that for everybody yeah. moving forward that it's using up a lot of battery and it's really stressful um, and to be kind to ourselves about that. Amazing. Well, that was awesome. I really appreciate your time. That was very valuable. We, I think people are going to get a great learn. We do have some resources to you on the website. If, yeah. um, so we have, uh, you know, the on-demand kind of video only. So we have one on Healthy Habits Suck. So it's okay. actually um, an eight-week kind of program. There's like eight sessions. It matches the book but goes into a lot more detail and also does the exercises from the book um, and some new ones as well. And so uh, people can go to the website if they want to access that and get some additional, um, you know, training or education. We also have live facilitated ones as well that you can sign up for. And we have a pandemic burnout one that will be available soon too. And the website is? It's drleebagley.com, which is D-R-L-E-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-Y.com. I'm sure I can figure out how to link that on there. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm on social media too, if you want. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Dana. Yeah. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.